everybody. This is Brent Kellogg, the pastor of Hill Spring Church in Sand Springs, Oklahoma. And this is our podcast. Thanks for taking time to join us today. Our prayer is that this would inspire you, build your faith, and help you take the next step in Christ. Enjoy the message. Before we jump into Daniel chapter 7, I'm going to ask you to pray for me because I've got a pretty cool opportunity coming up this Wednesday. I have the chance to speak to 450 teenagers from 12 different schools. It's a uh, student council kind of regional conference or gathering or whatever, and I'm one of the keynote speakers speaking on discovering the leader within. And so just make a mental note, pray for me Wednesday morning when you wake up, I'll be speaking about 9.30 and really excited about that. I just I love the opportunities that sometimes God gives us to, to speak in. And yes, I'm speaking in a public school, but I'm going to do my best to sprinkle some biblical leadership principles in there. So we are starting the second half of our road trip through the book of Daniel. And the first part, it's, it's, it's been fun, a lot of history, some life lessons we can learn from those characters. The second half in, in this journey we're about to embark on is going to it's probably gonna be more informational than necessary life lessons and, and, and it's gonna deal a lot with the prophetic and dealing with the end times. We've talked about how, how do I live with, with life of character and integrity in a Babylonian world because I feel like we're living in a Babylonian culture of our own and we've made it now through up to Daniel chapter seven. And so far it's been in a sequential timeline like this happened, then this happened, then this happened. Well, that's done. Because today we're going to back up in that timeline a little bit, and I'll, I'll explain that when we get that. The first half of Daniel really is, is history. And if you recall, there were some characters in the story that had dreams. King Nebuchadnezzar, he had a dream. And uh, in those dreams, he prophesied about some kingdoms that would, would come on the rise. There's a statue that he, he dreamed about in Daniel chapter 2. Pop that up on the screen. And, and in this dream, he saw this big statue with a head of gold and the arms and chest of silver, and then he saw the thigh of bronze with the mid-region, and, and this represented those, those kingdoms that would come on the rise. In Daniel's lifetime, he saw two of these prophecies fulfilled. Then he had no way of knowing that the Greeks were even a thing, and specifically the Romans, because they would come hundreds of years later. The point I say to make that God was prophesying, and for you and I, that's already happened. That has been fulfilled. And the point that I want you to take from that is if God prophesied and those prophecies were proven, the things that have been prophesied and yet to happen that are in the same book of Daniel, you and I know, we can, we can know that God wouldn't just fulfill the first half and not fulfill the second half. We can know that what God prophesied is going to come to pass. Amen? All right, so a couple of things I want you to consider as we're going to study through Daniel, and we'll kind of reach over into Revelation a little bit. You're going to hear this term, it was like. Because in the remaining parts of Daniel, he's going to do his best to describe heavenly things, eternal things, things that he, he doesn't really necessarily understand, but he's going to do his best to take heavenly ideas and put it into earthly language. And I'll talk more about this in just a second. There's a couple of books in the Old Testament that deal with, and, and from time to time I'll use this word eschatology, really just to make myself sound smart. I know it doesn't work, but it means the study, like biology, the study of life, anything with ology. And so eschatology is the study of the end of days or the end of times. And so uh, there's a couple of Old Testament books that have some prophecy about the end of times. Joel 
It's a little, little bitty book tucked away kind of in the middle of the Bible. Joel talks about prophecy. Then you have Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah dabbles in it just a little bit. But the main book out of the Old Testament that does the heavy lifting about end times prophecy is the book of Daniel. The New Testament is similar. There's a couple of books that, that talk a little bit about end times. Corinthians makes a mention to it. First and second Thessalonians, half of each one of those books deals with end time prophecy. The Gospels, Jesus talks about it. But the book in the New Testament that does most of the heavy lifting on the end time prophecy is the book of Revelation. So Daniel and Revelation are companion books. You'll see a lot of cross-reference. And so one more thing I, I want you to note, I am not an expert on end times. I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm not. I'm, there's a really good guy. I encourage you to kind of listen to him. He's written a book. I've read it cover to cover several times just to try to make myself sound, sound smart. It's really good. You need to check it out. His, his name is <clears throat> Jesus. Like you should check him out. Okay, I'm not an end times expert, and let's be real, no one is. I mean, there are people that love to talk about it, people love to read about it, people that love to, it, it's really fun, it's really entertaining to discuss of the potential and could this be and what would that mean. But I just beg you, don't, don't argue, don't, don't argue with somebody about end times. It's been sad to see in, in church history, the churches would split over some end time differences, if you will. And you're gonna be reading along and something's gonna pop up and I just, I'm just gonna tell you, you're going to hear me say these words. I have no idea what that means. I, I'm just telling you, I will give you some theories. I'll be their commentators, think this, some people say that, but you are gonna hear me say it even a couple of times today. I go, yeah, I have no idea what's going on there, all right? And so maybe you would find this of interest yourself and as you do any kind of reading or studying, I always hope that when I, when I preach a passage or preach into a book that maybe something we'll talk about, like I wanna go see that for myself and, and study. And today with online commentaries, it's so easy just to access some great stuff. If you read this, you're gonna start to see some really big terms because there's three predominant theories that revolve around the end time events. And I wanna, before I jump into Daniel, I wanna kind of unpack those three predominant theories, okay? One thought means that all the stuff, the end time stuff has already kind of been fulfilled. So when we talk about the Antichrist, when we talk about persecution, when we talk about the things that Daniel and the Revelation and Thessalonians refers to, there are people and they can make a, a pretty good case. Well, that's already been fulfilled. For example, a lot of that feels like it happened in 70 AD when the temple in Jerusalem and most of Jerusalem was completely destroyed. The Christians in Jerusalem in that day were heavily, heavily persecuted. And so there's a lot of people that just say, well, that stuff that was prophesied, yeah, that already came to be. One of the, kind of one of the dividing things about the doctrine of end times revolves around a thousand year period. And it's a thousand year reign. And so we'll refer to it as the millennial, okay? Not to be confused with the millennium falcon. That's a Star Wars thing, right? But the millennial means a thousand this thousand year reign of Christ in this thousand year kingdom. Keep in mind, a lot of numbers in scripture carry symbolism with them, they carry significance. For example, the number one means unity, that we were, we were one. No, there was 12 of us, but we were, we were one. The number two means witness, that there's confirmation here that it's not just one person accusing or whatever, but there's two together that bring witness. The number three symbolizes completion. It symbolizes perfection. You have the Trinity, it's complete. God the Father, God the Son, 
in the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. You have num the number five, which represents grace. You have the number 12, which represents spiritual authority. In the Old Testament, there were 12 tribes that governed the nation of Israel. In the New Testament, there were 12 elders, 12 disciples that eventually became the 12 apostles or 12 elders. So 12 kind of represents governance. The number 40 is symbolic of trials, okay? Like um, Jesus was in the wilderness and tempted for 40 days. Noah, it rained for 40 days. But the number 40 also is a number that means it's small and countable. And, and we use a very similar term in, in our language, in our modern vernacular, if you will. Man, about a month or so ago. Okay, well, February has 28 days. January, March, May, June, July, October, December have 31 days, and then all the rest have 30. So some months have 28, some months have 30, some have 31. So when we say a month or so ago, what number is it? And so 40, it's kind of that same thing. Like for us, it would, well, it just, you know, about a month ago, about, about 40 days ago, it's, a, it's a, a small number, easy to count, and it represents kind of a, a short but substantial period of time. And then you have the number 1,000. And you'll see it in times in Scripture in kind of the best way I, I can think I can describe 1,000. It's kind of like Buzz Lightyear, to infinity and beyond, right? So, we obviously have calculators and, and our economy just operates in, in bigger and bigger numbers. But in the time of Jesus, in the time of ancient scripture, like you use the number a thousand, but rarely. Like in the book of numbers, when they were counting the, the people of Israel, sure, there was this tribe had 56,000 and this tribe had 40,000. You would use that, but typically the number 1,000 was in kingdom work, um, something at that level, it, it wasn't common that the common everyday person that, that walked the street would use the word or use the number 1,000. So typically, it means a really big and hard to count number. Like, oh my goodness, like a, a million dollars. Well, to them, they would go, my goodness, like $1,000, right? So in the end time doctrines, everything revolves around this 1,000. Is it exactly 365 days times 1,000, because in Scripture, like the Bible says that a day with the Lord is like 1,000 years. Well, a day with the Lord is, it's a long, really kind of hard to count type number. So the first end time doctrine that I wanna just, I'm just gonna scratch the surface here, probably confuse you more than anything, is pre-millennial view about end times. Remember that millennial means that 1,000 years, okay? And so, that premillennial means we are living before that 1,000-year reign. It's coming. Jesus will reign and rule for 1,000 years. It hasn't happened yet, so right now we are living pre, before that, okay? And so when you get into premillennial theology, it's gonna branch off into, then you have people that bring in the tribulation, which we'll talk about, and you have people that talk about the rapture, which we'll, we'll talk about, and so, well, I'm a, pre-tribber, mid-tribber, post-tribber, and it sounds like you're tripping anyway, you know, it, like it can get real swarmy, but the base of that is that that thousand-year reign is yet to happen, and we are living before it. If that makes sense, say amen. Then the next is the post-millennial, meaning that Jesus is gonna come back after that thousand-year reign, okay? Like, that's the simplest form. You can go read a lot of stuff, but the simplest form is that Jesus will return after this thousand-year reign has happened. 
I'm gonna read just some commentary. Postmillennialism holds that Jesus established his kingdom on earth through the preaching, through the redemption, through the work of the church, and he equips the church with the gospel. He's empowered by the Holy Spirit, and he charges the church with the great commission. Go seek and save that which is lost. Go preach the gospel, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the earth. Go to the ends of the earth. Like, that's, that is the millennial, is that the church is, and it's a spiritual reign, not necessarily a political reign, okay? And then there's amillennial. And it's a little bit similar to postmillennial, but amillennial, it, it regards that thousand years as just symbolic. Like, it just means a bunch of time, okay? It's not a literal description like Jesus won't necessarily have, like he's already doing that. He's, God's on the throne. Jesus is king. Jesus in heaven, right? But they're, they're saying there won't be this, this thousand year reign, so to be. They believe it, if it is, it's already begun. And really the church age is kind of that amillennial view. Amillennialism holds that while Christ reign during the it's a spiritual nature, the ending will just be the final judgment. There won't be a rapture and that Jesus is just gonna come back and set up the new heaven and the new earth, okay? I, there's a lot that you could go into pre, post, and amillennial. I just kinda wanted to scratch the surface because a lot of end time theology revolves around one of those three views. Over the next few weeks, I think we're gonna kinda flesh and kinda work some of this out. In Daniel chapter two, King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. He had a dream of that statue, okay? And Daniel was able to interpret the dream. In, uh, in Daniel chapter four, King Nebuchadnezzar had another dream about the tree. And Daniel was able to interpret that dream. In Daniel chapter five, King Belshazzar, he saw the handwriting on the wall. Daniel was able to interpret that and translate those words and, and what that meant. Notice I want you to see is Daniel had a gift for interpreting dreams. Daniel had a way of taking spiritual revelation and presenting it so that people could understand what was going on. In Daniel chapter seven, he's going to have a dream. So the dream interpreter is about to have a dream. We're gonna start at verse one, but I wanna put verse 15 up for just a second because we're not gonna get that far in our text this morning. Verse 15 says, I, Daniel, was troubled by all I had seen and my visions terrified me. So I approached one of those standing beside the throne. We'll talk about the throne in a minute. And I asked him, what does all this mean? And he explained it to me like this. So the point is, the dream interpreter had to get help to understand what he was seeing, all right? So Daniel chapter seven, verse one. It says, earlier, during the first year of King Belshazzar's reign in Babylon, Daniel had a dream and he saw visions as he lay in his bed and he wrote down the dream and this is what he saw. So remember, the timeline up through Daniel chapter seven was consistent. This happened, this happened, this happened, this happened. And so, but the first half of Daniel is over. And now in that timeline, we're actually, we're jumping back a little bit. Most scholars believe, remember Belshazzar was the guy that saw the handwriting on the wall that very night. The Medo-Persians army, they had combined, they came in, they conquered Babylon. The Babylon empire crumbled. That happens in Daniel chapter six, okay? Well, now we're in Daniel chapter seven and it says that Belshazzar is king. So Daniel chapter seven in the timeline of things actually takes place in and around Daniel four and Daniel five. So don't, it can get confusing if you think that all of Daniel falls in a sequential time sequence, it doesn't. It does up through the end of chapter six, 
But Daniel chapter seven, it goes back in time to Daniel four and chapter five. If that makes sense, say amen. All right, we're good. Daniel, uh, chapter seven, verse two. In my vision that night, I, Daniel, saw a great storm turning the surface of a great sea with strong winds blowing in every direction. Then four huge bees came out of the water. Each was different from the others. And I wanna remind you that in the book of Daniel, in the book of Revelation, Daniel's trying to explain heavenly things and put it in earthly words. So he's gonna say, it was like, it was like, it was like. Just take, for example, if you could pluck Daniel out of his time and you could put him here, how would he describe some of the things that we take for granted? In Daniel's time, the main source of transportation was your two own feet. Or maybe the rich people owned donkeys and camels and a horse. You were really rich if you owned a horse, okay? Well, how would Daniel describe somebody getting in a Ford, oh, yeah, F-350, three-quarter ton, power stroke, diesel. Oh, let's pull in a big old trailer. How would he, how would he, like how would Daniel describe that? Because the only way of transportation he'd ever seen in his life was somebody riding a camel. I mean, it might go something like this. It was a metal beast with eyes of fire. It roared as though the sound of a hundred horses stampeding. It had a tail of iron. The beast consumed the man, carried him down the road, and spewed him out. Like, he don't know what a pickup looks like. So a lot of artists have made an attempt to draw what Daniel saw. I'm gonna put a picture up. I'm not saying this is what those beasts, this is not like what they look like, but this, I just saw this on the Googles. I thought, well, all right. So as I'm gonna read these descriptions, just kind of, Catch that, That's, this is what Daniel does. It was like a lion, it was like a bear, it was like a leopard. You're gonna see that, okay? So let's, let's just jump right in. Daniel chapter seven, verse four, and he's gonna describe the first beast. The first beast was like a lion, but it had eagle's wings. And as I watched, its wings were pulled off, and it was left standing with, on its two hind feet on the ground, almost like a human being. And then it was given a human mind, okay? So the lion with wings represents the Babylonian empire or the Babylonian kingdom, okay? You remember King Nebuchadnezzar built that statue and had all those dreams. Many times he referred to himself as a lion. The Babylonian empire, like one of their national symbols was the lion. And if you recall, the Babylonian empire collapsed. The Medes and the Persians came along and defeated them, so they were humbled. Like, they lost their wings. They were humbled in that, okay? So the first beast was like a lion with wings. Verse five, then I saw a second beast, and it looked like a bear. It was rearing up on one side, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. I heard a voice saying to it, get up, devour the flesh of many people. Well, that's encouraging. So the second beast is a bear, and the bear represents the Medo-Persian empire that would come conquer the Babylonian empire in uh, Daniel chapter six, okay? Now, the ribs are, are kind of a, what, what do they represent that are coming out of his mouth? And the ribs represent the empires that most people think 
they conquered to build together as the Medo-Persian Empire. And so that was the Libyan Empire, the Babylonian Empire, and the Egyptian Empire. But listen, listen, real close, listen. I have no idea. Like, I don't really know. I don't really, I don't really know, all right? So, uh, verse six. Then the third of these strange beasts appeared, and it looked like a leopard. It had four bird's wings on its back, and it had four heads. Well, that's a funky-looking thing. And great authority was given to this beast, all right? So the third beast is a leopard. The leopard is a very fast, very swift animal. It represents the Greek empire, or the, the Grecian is sometimes referred to that, okay? It was impressive how fast Alexander the Great and the Greek army conquered their enemies, how fast they were able to mobilize. It took him 12 years to conquer the known world. One historian says that he literally wept because he was bored and there was no other lands for him to conquer. He created this fast and swift and vast Greek army. And so the leopard, a very fast animal, that's what it represents, okay? So it also had four heads. So Alexander the Great did not leave the Greek empire to an heir. He actually left it to four of his leaders, to four Generals, and each one of those four would eventually become their own empire. So that's the first three beasts. Daniel was born roughly 623 BC, all right, 620 years before Jesus. The Greek Persian Wars, they're called the uh, Greco Persian Wars, they actually happened, they started in 492 BC. So they started 130 years after Daniel was, was even born. I say that to say Daniel had no way of knowing the Greeks or eventually the Romans would ever rise to power. Yet, in his lifetime, he saw the first two kings. He saw the, Babylons and the, or the Babylonians and the Persians actually rise to power. But he never saw the Greeks rise to power. He never saw the Romans rise to power. But yet, the prophecies happened. Okay, meaning these prophecies in Daniel chapter seven, they were divinely inspired. God is revealing to him what's gonna happen. Daniel couldn't just make this stuff up on his own. Now, I was gonna tell you, verse seven, the dream is gonna get just a little bit weird and he's gonna struggle trying to describe it. All right, so verse seven. Then in my vision that night, I saw a fourth beast and it was terrifying, dreadful, and very strong. Well, you know right there, it's not a Texas Longhorn because that's just out. Like, it's not even, that's not even a thing. It devoured and crushed its victims with huge iron teeth and trampled their remains beneath its feet. Okay, iron teeth, you're gonna see legs too, it's important. It was different from the other beast and it had 10 horns. As I was looking at the horns, suddenly another small horn appeared among them. Three of the first horns were torn out by the roots to make room for it. This little horn, though, it had eyes like human eyes and it had a mouth that was real mouthy, all right? It was boasting arrogantly. So the fourth beast is undescribed. I mean, he does his best to describe it, but he, he doesn't say that it was, it, you know, the others were like lions and bears and leopards, but he doesn't give an animal assignment to this one. He just says it was terrifying. He said it had 10 horns. Now, 
This, we believe, was the Roman Empire, okay? And it makes sense that the first three follow in line with the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and now the Romans. And in that big statue, they had the head of gold, chest of silver, bronze, and then Rome was represented by iron. This beast had iron teeth, okay? But then Daniel begins to focus on the 10 horns. And this is where there's a lot of opinions. What do the horns represent? This is where it gets swirly. People say this, some people say that. So just give you some, some things that, that people say. Some people think this, the 10 horns represent the 10 empires that would be birthed out of the Roman Empire, okay? For example, the British Empire. Well, well that was originally part of the Roman Empire or the Spaniards, right? They were kind of the top dog, and, and that came out of the Roman Empire. The French, the Germans, okay? There, there were 10 empires, so some people think it's that. Some people think that 10 horns represents the 10 kind of emperors that would rule the Roman Empire. Some people think the little mouthy chippy horn, some people, I'm not saying I think that, but some people think it's the Catholic Church. I'm not saying that's what it is, but I'm just telling you, if you start reading, this is, this is what you'll see. Listen to me real close. Let me tell you. I just don't know. I, I don't know. I, it's ten horns, and I, it can be one of several things, okay? So if you go back to Nebuchadnezzar's statue, he had the two legs of iron that represent the Roman Empire, okay? We talk about how that became the east and the west, like the Roman Empire was divided in the east and the west, okay? Well, this was divided with two legs, and then there were ten toes on this statue. Well, this fourth beast has ten horns, I think those 10 horns are the same as those 10 toes. I, I will tell you what I think that is, but please don't ever get in an argument with somebody and go, well, my pastor says this, because sometimes your pastor's an idiot. I'm just gonna tell you that, all right? So, I think there will be a 10-nation alliance, and some people think it will be almost a resurgence out of the old Roman Empire, but I, I think it will be the bulk of what used to be the old Roman Empire, that there will be this 10-nation alliance. Okay, but even if you look at this, we talked about how the two feet, several weeks ago, how they represent the east and the west and how the Roman Empire was divided east and west. And if you look at the east and the west, there is still remnant of the Roman Empire and how things are governed today. They still exist. For example, we govern like the Romans. The Romans had a Senate, representative Senate. Guess what? We have that same type government. The Roman symbol was an eagle. Guess what? We have an eagle, okay? The judicial system that we use to preside justice, that birthed out of the Roman Empire, okay? So I also believe that little mouthy horn is what a character we're gonna deal with called the Antichrist, okay? And what you're gonna see, even back in the beginning when Satan fell out of God's graces, he has always been in competition with God. He's always tried to mimic God. He's always tried to create confusion around God. And so there is a holy trinity, God the Father seated on the throne, Jesus Christ, his son, who's at the right hand of the Father, and the Holy Spirit. That's the presence of God. That's how you and I relate to God. It's how we sense God. It's God's essence or God's presence. There is a holy trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Amen, everybody? Well, guess what? We're gonna see an unholy trinity. Hey, you're gonna have Satan who's gonna try to be counterfeit God. You're going to have Antichrist who's literally gonna try to set himself up like Jesus. And then, so you're gonna see 
in these coming days, this unholy trinity as well. Verse eight, as I was looking at the horn, suddenly another small horn appeared among them. Three of the first horns were torn out by the roots to make room for it. Could be, one of, could be three of those nations part from that original 10 nation alliance. It could be three of those nations combined to make one and then that world leader kind of comes out of that. I don't know. Verse six, or uh, for the little horn had eyes like human eyes and a mouth that boasted arrogantly. So I, I think that little horn is what we're gonna see becomes the antichrist. Keep in mind, there's a lot of folks that think all of this has already happened. There's a lot of people who down through history could fit the description of the antichrist. There was a Roman emperor by the name of Gaius Caligula and he was adamant that a statue of himself needed to be set up in the temple in Jerusalem. You don't think the people that lived in that day, they probably thought he was the Antichrist. I mean, Mark chapter 13, Jesus says, listen, there's coming a day when you will see a sacrilegious object that causes desecration standing where it should not be. Meaning, there's going to be something that's not sacred placed in the temple. Well, in 40 AD, when this guy came along and says, hey, I want my statue put in the temple, there were people that probably thought, this dude's the Antichrist. Several times, Jesus will quote the book of Daniel. He'll quote Daniel chapter nine, he'll quote Daniel chapter 11, he'll quote Daniel chapter 12, okay? And so that probably felt like in times. In 70 AD, if you can go in history to 70 AD, the Roman general Titus would march on Jerusalem almost completely destroy Jerusalem, but he did completely destroy the temple and it has not been rebuilt to this day. There were people then that probably thought, this is it. This is how this world comes in because Christians were massively persecuted. And so they probably thought we're living in the end times. And then the Bible talks about that there's wars and rumors of wars. In the early 1900s, majority of the world was at war in Europe. They probably thought this is it. In World War II, the majority of the world, again, was at war. There was a guy who desperately persecuted the Jewish people. I bet you Hitler felt a lot like the Antichrist. So keep in mind, down through history, there have been people that they were a version of the Antichrist, but I think there is still one that is yet to come, this little horn that's a little bit mouthy, all right? So verse nine. We're fixing to jump from ancient history, from the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans. We're fixing to jump from ancient history to the end of days. And you're like, well, man, that's a, how can you jump like over 3,000 years? Because it happens in the dream. Verse nine. So Daniel says, I watched as thrones were put in place, and the New Living Translation says the ancient one. But I, I love the older translations. They call him the ancient of days. How the ancient of days sat down to judge. His clothing was white as snow. His hair was like pierced wool. He sat on a fiery throne with wheels of blazing fire and a river of fire was pouring out, flowing from its presence. Millions of angels ministered to him. Many millions stood to attend him. Then the court began its session. This ain't Judge Judy, baby. And the books were opened. There's multiple books, we won't talk about them today, but there's multiple books. And I want you to see, anytime in scripture, we talked about numbers have symbolism. When you see fire, many times in scripture, fire is representative 
of judgment and justice, okay? What Daniel just witnessed in verse nine and verse 10 is the seating of the judge. Like it is, he refers to him as the ancient of days. What a beautiful description. Like, Mufasa, say it again, baby. Like the ancient of days, that is just so powerful. What he's saying is he has always been. Before there was night and day, there was God. Before there was a beginning, there was God. He is the ancient who outlasts even time known on this earth. So Monday night, it was rather late, and Kaylee was still up, and it was just time for bed. So I did what any lazy parent would do. I just text her. Time to go to bed. Okay. So Tuesday night, we're sitting at the dining at the dinner table, and and she's like, "Okay, so how did you know that I was like still up?" To which I said, "Don't you know who I work for? Like God knows all, and I might be His favorite employee. No, I'm not. I'm just." There is nowhere you can go that my boss don't know where you're at. No, like seriously, how did you know that I was still up? And I seized that moment and I do what we dads do. And I said, I was born at night, it just wasn't last night, right? You know how the ancient of days would respond in that situation? He'd be like, girl, <laughs> I wasn't even born, I just always been. So you see the seating of the judge that Daniel says, the only way I can describe him is he's always been. Like he even predates time. He's the ancient of days and his throne is wheels of fire full of judgment. So in scripture, you're gonna see different judgment seats. There's two predominant ones, okay? The first one is the judgment seat of Christ where Jesus, the son of God, is doing the judging, okay? In this, the saints will be rewarded. This is not telling some fun joke and maybe St. Peter will let you in, you know what I'm saying? This is not, are you gonna get in or not? You going to heaven or hell? This is not. This is for the rewarding of the saints. It's based on 1 Corinthians 3 and 2 Corinthians 5. And we will not be judged on salvation, we'll not be judged on eternity, but we will be rewarded or loss of reward because you and I as Christians will have to give an account for what we did with this life, with our resources, with the opportunities that God entrusted to us, okay? This is not, am I getting in? It's not about heaven and hell. This is you and I as believers will be rewarded for this life that we have lived for Christ. Amen, everybody? Then the second throne is the great white throne of judgment. It's found in Revelation chapter 20. And the saints won't be there. This is where the sinners will be condemned. This is where the lost people who have rejected the offer of salvation, where they will stand and appear before God and there will be a condemnation. There will be a sentencing to eternal destruction in hell, okay? Satan at this moment will also be judged and destroyed. You were here in week one, and I know it feels like 20 weeks ago, but if you were here when we started this, I talked about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel, and what they're 
Hebrew names meant. Daniel, his word ends with the two letters E-L, which means God. Dan, Daniel literally has the name of God in his name. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they all had names that had God referenced in them, okay? The word God, or El, appears in many of the names of God. El Shaddai, El Ohim, El Roho, right? And Daniel's name means God is my judge or God has judged. It's funny that his mama named him Daniel. And in this moment, in Daniel chapter seven, Daniel is seeing the meaning of his name played out in front of him in this dream. The holy courtroom is open and the ancient of days, the supreme justice is seated on his throne of fire and everybody ought to say amen. One more thing that Daniel sees and I'll land the plane. Verse 13. As my vision continued that night, I saw someone like a son of man. We've already seen that title in the book of Daniel back in the fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I saw someone like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient one or the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, honor, and sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that people of every race and nation and language would obey him. He, his rule is eternal and it will never end and his kingdom will never be destroyed. Amen, everybody. Sorry, again, like it just preaches itself. It's just fun to read. Go home, try it yourself, it's amazing. Who is this son of man that verse 13 talks about? Sounds familiar. Several times in Jesus' ministry, referring to himself, he would use this title. I'm gonna just give you one example found in the Gospel of Mark. You don't have to turn there and put it on the screen. Mark chapter 14, verse 61. Jesus has been arrested. Jesus, ironically, is being put on trial. He is standing before a judge, the high priest, and this is the conversation that has. It says, then the high priest asked him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? And Jesus said, I am. You know, by the way, that's the name God gave Moses when Moses was standing there on holy ground at the burning bush, and God says, Moses, I want you to go to Egypt and get my kid. He's like, who do I tell them is coming? He said, you tell them I am. In that moment, Jesus said, I am. And there is a room full of Jewish leaders and Pharisees and Sadducees and, and Jewish scholars and rabbis that are there. And most likely, they all had the book of Daniel memorized. And while Jesus was on some kind of trial, he quotes this passage from this scene in Daniel chapter seven that is the trial to end all trials. And he says, I am the son of man. He's not just saying, I'm a human too. Hey, I'm a guy just like you. That's not what he's saying. He was quoting Daniel chapter seven that says, you will see the son of man. So you have seen the seating of the supreme judge, the ancient of days. God has taken his court. But Daniel also sees the coronation of King Jesus. My friends, God is on his throne. And the unfair things of life, those who have done evil in this world, those that have abused and taken advantage of people, this horrific injustice that the world has experienced 
at the hands and motivation of evil people that were inspired by our enemy, Satan himself. There is a day that is coming where vengeance is mine, thus saith the Lord, and he is going to cast down and he's going to deal with every evil that has been undealt with. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue, whether it wants to or not, is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I hope you enjoyed the podcast today. If you did, there's a couple of things I want to invite you to do. First, hit the subscribe button. That way, you won't miss a single episode. Secondly, if this message has impacted you and you would like to help us reach others, visit our website at hillspring.tv and hit the Give Now button so that we can take this message around the globe. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.